Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex, and this is our Wednesday show where we sit down with a guest, think about their work, and unpack the rest. Today, we are joined by Spencer Skates, CEO and co-founder of Amplitude. Amplitude is a digital product analytics company, which means it helps its customers track and understand user behavior so that they can build better apps and services. Previously, Spencer helped build an app called Sonalite that did text to voice, and we have brought Spencer on the show to chat through the B2B software market, dealing with increasingly parsimonious customers, and AI from a data perspective. Spencer, welcome to the show. Alex, fantastic to be here. Really excited. We've spent, obviously, a lot of time together in the past, and so really excited to share Sonalite, the Amplitude story, and what it's like on the inside of the company. I feel like whenever we talk after earnings, we have like seven minutes to compress an entire conversation. And today we have like 30 minutes. So this is like a full year of earnings call conversations. Normally you get me right before the earnings call. And so my mind is so focused on that. And so I'm just like giving you the exact same highlights. But now we can have a real conversation about it. It's going to be great. I do really enjoy talking to people pre-earnings call and then reading the transcript later on and realizing that they were just like copy pasting into my phone call with them because they're so prepped. I mean, it's public company stuff, so I get it. So Amplitude is public, and we'll talk about the most recent quarter. But first of all, from a very high-level perspective, how's business these days? We've been really excited about what we're doing. The macro has been tough, no question, but the team has stepped up to the challenge. We're getting a lot better from an execution standpoint. We've been able to predict the business a lot better. We saw a revenue beat in Q2, which was fantastic, and we raised our guidance for the year which you know, not all companies are doing in environment. A lot of them are lowering it. And so that's a great place for us to be in. Still, you know, more stuff for us to do. I'm not happy with where we're at. And so a lot on the execution front that we're still going to drive between here and the end of the year. Yeah. And just for people who haven't gone through all the IR stuff, I've pulled some data. And in your last quarter, Amplitude had revenue of $67.8 million, up 17% year over year, putting the company on an annual recurring revenue base of $268 million. Customers were up 28% to 2344 And then trailing dollar-based net retention was 108%. And we'll get more into that down the road. But the context for Amplitude's earnings and the overall set of data we've gotten from a lot of companies is that things seem to be at once not terrible and yet also not very good. And I'm trying to kind of parse out how the market is doing, and I'm trying to decide where I should be focusing my attention as an outside party. So when you're thinking about the health of Amplitude and growth in general, what are the the numbers you're most kind of focused on? Is it net retention? Is it just net logo ads? Where is your real focus? The top thing is how do we get ARR to grow? So that's the North Star with which I operate the business too. And so that's the number one thing. You know, that's been on our, our scorecard from day one since we started the business and way back in 2014 yeah. to today. And so I'm thinking about how do I get that from 268 million, which we're at today, to a billion in ARR. This last year, candidly, has been tough for a lot of companies that went out for the first time in 2021. I think what we're seeing is a lot of customers who ended up overbought or maybe were predicting faster growth back in 2021, and a lot of them are pulling back this year. Yeah. Great news is, from a health of the business standpoint, we're in phenomenal shape. We're free cash flow positive. We recorded 19 million of free cash flow in Q2. We're expecting to be free cash flow positive on a run rate basis going forward now. So as we look at Q3 and Q4, that's also true and and just indefinitely going forward. And so we're in a great position as a business. A lot of companies in this market aren't at that spot, particularly on the private side. We're the leader in our category. And I think what's important is we navigate through this year successfully and we set ourselves up for great growth in 2024 and beyond. 
So I, I did notice on the call that you guys were talking a lot about this 1 billion ARR number. And for reference, folks out there who are listening, Fox recently crossed that threshold just to put kind of oh, a, a company to, to the figure. I'm pretty sure that was the last quarter. So shout out Aaron Levy. Why are you talking about a number that is roughly 4X your current ARR? Is it just to kind of like guide the company towards that? Or are you more trying to communicate to investors and customers that you have big aspirations and plans for the near future? It's both. Mm. This is the North Star. Like I said, ARR is the North Star. That's the milestone that we're focused on getting to, which is how do we turn this into a billion run rate business? There are very, very few SaaS companies that have gotten to that size and stage. So you've really become the dominant player in a market category if you have. And so that's what our focus is. We know that digital analytics is going to be a massive category. We're the leader in digital analytics today. And so we want to focus everyone on getting to that point within the company. And we want everyone outside to understand that's what our aspirations are. You know, the goal is not to just generate a bunch of cash flow, although, you know, we do have that and we're in great shape as a business now. The goal is to build a business with massive impact. And that's what that billion in ARR milestone represents. And and I think done right, you know, there's there's stuff on the other side of that too, you know, in terms of how you get to the multiple billions. So we're in a great position overall. We're seeing our leadership within the market continue to grow while tech markets have had a big hiccup this year. We're in great shape for the long term. Yeah. Getting to 1 billion from where you are is going to take a couple of years if I'm doing some very totally. loose mathematics in the background. And one way that SaaS companies have grown historically is not only just selling to new customers, but also the upsells and kind of like negative churn. Um, this is often put out as net dollar retention, net retention, whatever you want to call it. I've been tracking this across the software market. And it seems that no matter what company you pick from the top of the market, your snowflakes to companies more like DigitalOcean, everyone's seen their net retention come under pressure and decline. And you're trailing, net retention was 108% for the last four quarters and 101% yes. in the most recent quarter. Not abnormal, to be clear, not trying to cast aspersions, but I am noticing everyone suffering from the same thing. And you mentioned earlier on customers that overbought and so forth. I'm just curious how far through the process of clearing cruft around software sales we are and kind of when NDR should reaccelerate or kind of pick back up across the software landscape. I think we're in the middle of it right now. For Amplitude in particular, Q2 was... Our expectation is that's going to be the peak in terms of most customers doing right sizing. And that's because we have our largest renewal base coming up in Q2. Now, Got we're it. still expecting the customer cohorts that come up for renewal in Q3 and Q4 to go through the same sort of thing. And then those companies on two-year contracts that come up for renewal in 2024. But we're kind of right in the middle of it now. I think the companies that are saying, oh, you know, we're already done with the issues in macro are being way too overly optimistic. And so you got to be running your company as if this is going to continue for the short term. I think these sort of economic cycles often take a few years to play out. We saw it start yeah. to hit in 2022. And, you know, I think we're going to continue to see the same issues within the tech sector through this year and, you know, good chance through through next year as well. So we're managing our business so that we're going to be responsible throughout it. Now, again, the good thing is, being more efficient gives you a lot of leverage in, in the business. And so it's a good time to set a good foundation. It's a good time to consolidate leadership. We actually just announced our session replay product today. So that was really exciting to get out there where now we have the full suite analytics, CDP, experimentation, session replay. Those are the four core products that are all bought together. 
Mm -hmm. So really, really excited that we're the only vendor that has that. And so as much as we're going through, we're seeing a lot of the point players go through even worse stuff in terms of their customer bases where they're churning off of those onto us and some of those businesses are shrinking. And so we feel really good about our relative market position. And so what's important is just we're setting the business up to weather the storm and operate responsibly so that we're not beholden to public markets as much or we don't have to do a future fundraise or, or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, being free cash flow positive and thinking you're going to stay there for a long time means that you're almost done raising money unless you choose to. Done. You know? We're done. Exactly. Infinite runway. The real graduation is when you can afford your own business. It's fantastic. No more VCs, no need to raise debt. Fucking interest rate. We have our own money. Hell yeah. Um, Hell yeah. It's like, it's like turning 23 for a business if you're putting it in human year terms when you're finally like on your own two feet. But I can't let you say consolidation and point solutions providers struggling without being very curious if you're going to combine those two points and get busy with your checkbook. I hadn't thought of asking this question, but I'm I'm curious if the market does make acquisitions more attractive to your company. You know, it's funny because like the price of everything is depressed. And so like we don't have as much cash becomes more valuable. Normally, the way you do acquisitions is you're going to issue stock. And so that's one of the advantages of being public is that you have a liquid currency with which to acquire other companies. That's kind of the standard approach. Now, the downside is that liquid stock is worth less. The upside is that the companies you might acquire are worth less too. So, you know, those two kind of even out. For sure, it's a time where a lot of these companies are evaluating that sort of path more. And so that opens up great opportunities for us. And so we've looked at a number and we'll continue to keep our eyes open. And I think it'll be one of the tools that we have in our toolkit in order to consolidate our leadership in this space. You know, it, it depends on the other companies too. They need to be in a position where they're excited to get acquired and see the bigger opportunity. And so that's not always the case. So we always by default assume we're going to run it alone and we want to go win right. and consolidate the market. And we're also keeping our eyes out for opportunities where these companies do come up for sale. Yeah. You know, this is a, a show always centered around the startup world and people who are building kind of the next generation of companies. And so thinking about those founders and them getting excited about possibly selling to another company is the frequency at which you're looking at possible acquisitions going up as there are more startups in distress in the market today? It's been about the same. Okay. We did two acquisitions that were really small, clear brain and iteratively over the last few years. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, there's other companies we've evaluated since then and didn't happen to work quite right either because of the timing or terms or where us versus they were at. So we'll we'll continue to evaluate. I think for sure it's going to tick up more as more companies start to get into distress from a cash flow position. I think almost every company I see in the private markets is cash flow negative, which is tough at a time like this. And so they still have enough cash to continue to operate for maybe the next six, 12 months. But after that comes up, I, I think we'll see a lot more opportunities to potentially acquire them. I appreciate you bringing that up because it saves me from finding an awkward segue of my own to an important question. But first, we have to take a very short break. We are back in just a moment. You mentioned that Amplitude's free cash flow positive, which seems to be a target that a great number of companies in the tech world, big and small, are shooting for if they're not already there, startups included. And you also cut staff back in April. I think it was 13% of the company. 13%. And... I'm just the hard-edged jerk in me with this business hat on is like, well, if you had extraneous staffers, you know, you can reduce your cost basis and be more profitable. And then the super soft, squishy side of me is like, but Spencer, you have lots of money. Why did you have to let them go? So as the leader of a company going through a period of market unsettledness, how do you decide when it's best to be frugal for the long term versus more caring in the near term with people? I think the thing it came back to at the end of the day was we were oversized. 
relative to how much business growth we saw in the next year. And so given that, it just didn't make sense for us to continue to have, we had overstaffed in 2021 and 2022 relative to the growth rate we we're seeing in 2023. And it just didn't make sense. Now, yeah. you know, obviously we're, we looked for a lot of different other options. We actually did quite a bit on cost savings at the end of 2022 in the second half. We also slowed hiring tremendously. Mm-hmm. And we looked for other ways to slice it. But no matter how we did, it's just like, if you look at, okay, here's revenue growth. Here's how much you're investing in that revenue growth. It just was too far out of whack for it to make sense ultimately. And so, you know, unfortunately we had to do that. Now, if I could go back in time, what would I have done differently? In July of 2022, I would have said stop hiring then. If we had done that, then we probably could have avoided what we ended up running into. Now, the good news is we did slow it. And so we didn't have to go through multiple rounds like a lot of other companies we're seeing now. We didn't have to go through a more drastic change in in the organization. And and look, I don't want to downplay it. Like there's 99 people who lost their jobs and, you know, who I, lots of folks I really appreciated working with as well. And that's on me ultimately, but it was the right thing to do because we were oversized relative to where the business was at. Yeah. And is this like you kind of project an amount of growth and you build out your sales team so that way reps will ramp by the right time for the right level of growth. And then you end up just with like too many literal people for the... Yeah, yeah so, okay. so that yeah, makes sense you, to me. You, you got it, Alex, where it's like, if you have too many reps going after too few opportunities because the market has cooled, you get all sorts of issues. One, it's like, okay, you're paying just from a purely business standpoint, you're paying for all these folks that that aren't building the business successfully. And then even from a team and organization standpoint, you have a lot less reps who are successful. Uh, And so your good reps quit. Um, And you kind of get into this bad spiral as a company. And so you want the folks that are still here to be able to have the opportunity for success, even in an environment like this. And so that meant reducing the total size of the organization. Yeah, no, I hear you. And I'm so of of both brains about this because on one hand, I am an employee currently. And on the other hand, I can read a balance sheet. And so between the two, it's somehow my my take on this. But that does help. And I appreciate the context. The last thing I'd say is like, I, I think... It's been a huge shock because so much of this workforce has been in a bull market since 2010. And so you've gotten like 12 or 13 years of just increasing year on year growth, increasing valuations, increasing compensations. And so for everyone who started work in 2010, and myself included, by the way, or later, then this is a big shock because this is the first time you're going through any sort of recessionary period. And it's, it's, it's painful. It's, you know, there's, there's no two ways around it. It sucks on a number of fronts. Now, this is at the same time what it is. And so folks who have been through 2008 or 2001, totally, you know, it's the exact same thing. It's not anything new relative to what happens in previous economic cycles. But for sure, for people who have, are seeing it for the first time, it can be a shock. They should do what I did, which is, I think I went to college from 2008 to 2012, which is perfect. Because I just, the economy went to hell and I went to the academy. And then when I came out, everything was okay again. Hell yeah. It's hard. It's hard. You know, they actually did some research that showed that if you started your career in 2008, you were actually, your lifetime's earnings is actually going to be like a few percent less than if you had started at at different times. So, you know, if you can time it like that, always a good thing. Yeah. We, the quasi elder millennials, didn't have the best possible launch into the world. Hey, you know, here we are today. Going back to the market though, I want to talk about customers a little bit because I was just thinking about net retention, gross churn, and kind of where the company is today. And you mentioned on the earnings call, you know, the crypto market has seen some slowdowns. So you're seeing some reduced spend there and so forth. Does customer strength cut along customer size? For example, are bigger companies holding up better for amplitude than smaller companies? Or is there any kind of like striation there that we can learn from? 
Yes, absolutely. For sure, a lot of the smaller companies doing massive downsizings they're going into business are the biggest drag on our business as a whole. Yeah. If you look at SMB customers versus enterprise customers, there's a 17-point spread in terms of gross dollar retention. So on the earnings call, we said that we're in the mid-80s in terms of gross dollar retention, yeah. which is okay for a market like this. Really want to be at the 90-plus range when we expect to get there, particularly as we come out of this cycle. But it's really that bottom end of the market that's a huge drag. And so just so many venture-backed companies and small companies going out of business, and that rate accelerates at a time like this. Whereas the larger companies, you know, they may go through some contract reductions or things like that, but they're still going to be around. And so you, yeah, you for sure see that. So does that change what you're going to build for the future? Like, does this reduce your interest in serving the, I mean, I'll call it the SMB market for lack of a better phrase, but essentially smaller accounts, because on one hand, if they're less efficient and they go away in harder times, they're less attractive. But on the other hand, they can become the next big company. So if you get them early, maybe it plays out. Totally. So there's actually two things we're doing. One is focusing more of the resources on the enterprise. We're still going to have a great SMB business. We're going to still serve them. We've been the leader in that. We have the most generous free plan out there. You know, that's where some of our largest companies have come from. To your point, like the big upsell that we did in Q2 came from a company that started with us as a smaller company in 2015. So we still want to make sure to do that. Like B-Rail, another great example where they had grown Mm -hmm. to a really huge account, a large account with us after starting very small. So we still want those customers, but more of the resources are going to be focused on traditional enterprise. And so one of our strategic pillars is win the enterprise. And so making sure that we're focusing from a resource perspective on that segment of the market. The second thing that I'd say is that we want to get more effective at that SMB motion. And so we're driving a few different things there. One is product-led growth, so being able to allow those customers to self-serve, not have to go through a heavy sales process, try it on their own. We already introduced MTU-based pricing at the start of the year, which helped us get more customers in that segment, and we're going to do more as we go through the rest of this year. And then the other is make the product much simpler and easier to use, which helps, again, you know, if you don't have a huge complex team to deploy the software, okay, and you just want to get started on your own easily, you can do that. And it also helps win the traditional enterprise because if they're not familiar with digital analytics, they can still get up and running and on the easy use cases on Amplitude. So we're still going after the segment, but proportionally our resources are more focused towards the enterprise. The question is, when you talk to other CEOs, I know there's probably some sort of CEO WhatsApp group that you're part of, maybe Telegram, I don't know, whatever the SEC can't read, I'm kidding. When you guys are talking amongst one another, are you seeing a similar sentiment amongst other technology company CEOs in terms of prioritizing the enterprise because it's more durable and perhaps just more lucrative than the S&B space? Oh, for sure. Yeah, for, for sure. Yeah. Like just generally across the board, you see companies making that pivot, especially at times like this. And so I think most SaaS companies, what will happen is you'll start on the low end of the market because those are the easiest to sell to. And then over time, you're going to work your way up to the higher end yeah. of the market because that's where the largest dollars are. And and that's every SaaS company has gone through this. If you look at it, Salesforce, ServiceNow, Workday, like you kind of go down the list. It's like they've all made that transition. And so we're doing that too. And, and this sort of time definitely accelerates, definitely accelerates companies focusing on, on that revenue. I mean, that was like the venture and startup rule of thumb that I was taught back in the day. But then it seemed like in the last couple of years, people were really talking about SMB tech being big and how many you know possible accounts there were and why SMBs were more attractive than everyone was saying they were for a long time. We're getting 
a bad rap. And now we're sitting here at the end, you know, on the other side of that cycle. And I'm kind of like, maybe the conventional wisdom was dead on the whole time. And SMBs are kind of just tough customers because they turn more often and, and they just never grow to a larger ACV. So I, I'm almost kind of like back to being like, great, whatever I learned in 2014 is the thing I should just stick to forever. You know, so you've seen companies like Zendesk and HubSpot actually create really large businesses, multi, multi-billion businesses, yeah. specifically focused on the SMB market. So it can be done. I think the overall thing is that the enterprise market is larger, and so there's more companies it can support. You can still focus on the SMB if, if you want, but it's harder to build a business there for a number of reasons. But now that yeah. SaaS markets are a lot bigger, it's certainly possible. And then the other thing that happens is at times like this, it's just you know that segment in particular gets hit the hardest, and you see so much more turnover of businesses. Okay. One last question about the market before we talk about AI, because there's a lot of stuff there that I want to touch on. Earlier, I asked you about when you think we're kind of going to reach the low point in the net retention cycle we're in and so forth. Do you think that the amplitude perspective is shared by other software CEOs out there who are kind of looking at the same stuff that you are? I think a lot of them are over-optimistic. This is one of these things as an operator you learn where people are more likely to look at leading indicators that are positive than negative. <laughs> no. They, they want to believe. I want to believe. Yeah. You know, this market yeah. is going to be big. I have, I have a lot of conviction around that. But in the short term, as I look at it, you know, as we look at both Q3 and Q4, and as we look at early 24, it's like, you know, it's still going to be a tough market in a number of respects as I look at those account bases. And so I think people who are saying otherwise are being overly optimistic about what they're doing. You know, times like this really train you to have good discipline on that. And one of the things I think we have been good at Amplitude is getting in front of that earlier than other people. So back at the start of 2022, we saw that happening. We saw the first signs of real macro weakness and we kind of showed that. We're not popular for it, but it was correct in retrospect. And then I'm, I'm saying that now. Now, I'm not saying, you know, it's going to be like this forever. Absolutely not. You know, this is a cyclical thing and stuff will come back. And, and look, I want to be clear, we're still growing. Like, all these companies are still growing. They're just growing a little yeah. more slowly than they were before. Um, and funding is less available. So that makes things feel different. But it'll get back to a normal space over the next few years. No question in my mind. You just want to make sure to plan your business so you're not counting on that coming sooner than it actually does. Uh, okay, so so long-term optimism, short-term caution. Oh, hell yeah. You got to be paranoid as hell in the short term. Well, I mean, edibles are now legal, so now everyone can be paranoid all the time. <laughs> So, yeah, your PR team will love that one. You went public back in September of 2021, and then you alerted your investors about the macro situation getting weaker. I think it was February of 22. In February of 22, that was your, yeah. Yeah, your Q4 earnings report. Given that you went public and then the market got worse, do you regret the IPO timing, or was that actually the right move for the company? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Oh. It was totally right, correct then. for us to go out. If we were still private now, we would be in a world of hurt. You know, it'd be like, okay, there'd be all this pressure to go public, but then there wouldn't be an appetite for it. And so it'd be harder to get out. All the people that could have gotten liquidity, we wouldn't have had the advantages of being a public company for almost two years now. And so people wouldn't be clear that we're actually the market leader in our space. And so there'd be much more fear around us. We wouldn't have the, the liquid currency to be able to do things like acquisitions and you know, things like cash to cover on the stock side. And so it, it, we just be in so much worse of a shape. Now, look, don't get me wrong. It's painful to have an equity market that's in contraction, but that's just part of the cycle. And we got to focus on the things that are in our control and we're going to grow this business and win the category. And I will take every advantage I can get. And being public is no question one of those advantages. We're seeing, like I talked to some of these companies that are still private at our stage and it, it's really tough for them. It's, it's really tough. Yeah. 
a lot of them are still mispriced and just kind of stuck there. And now they're just trading water. And I, I just want to be like, good luck. I hope it goes better than we think it's going to. But, it, you know, the IPO window is still closed and valuations aren't going up that much. And people are just stuck. And you feel for them, frankly, because they were following the market. And then the market was like, ha JK. But let's talk about AI. So in the last earnings call, I talked about a couple of AI products that are coming out under the rubric of, I believe, Amplitude AI. And analysts were very excited about this. Woo, Spencer, you're doing AI. Fantastic. And then you said that you're rolling this stuff out slowly and you're not currently monetizing it. And I thought that was a very interesting choice because we have seen Microsoft begin to charge for its generative AI co-pilot products. We have seen some companies begin to charge, but no one seems to really know what's going on. So I'm curious, why as you roll out these early AI products for Amplitude, are you not charging for them discreetly? So I think you got to be clear on what it is we're doing with AI versus what Microsoft and Salesforce and ServiceNow and all these other companies are doing with AI. Microsoft and co are using generative AI to help automate existing workflows. So like, let me write that email for you. Let me fill out that ticket for you. Let me respond to this question for you automatically. And so it actually makes a bunch of sense because you're introducing net new functionality that you haven't had before. And you're kind Mm -hmm. of automating and saving a bunch of money by doing so. What we're doing with AI is a little bit different where we're focusing it on automating existing workflows that you already use Amplitude and making them a lot easier. So question Mm -hmm. to chart is a perfect example where you type in your query, we'll generate a chart for you. People are already still doing that before AI. Now it's going to be a lot easier to do. We're doing it with taxonomy management. We're doing it with suggested chart names. We're doing it with suggested formulas. So there's a bunch of places we're using AI to make existing workflows easier, not create net new ones. And so it doesn't make as much sense to charge for it. Instead, what you're focused on is making it as a tool to make it easier to get onboarded and up and running on your product. Do you think that divide of when to charge for new AI products and services that are part of an existing software suite is going to hold? Or do you think people are going to be, I'm not going to say greedy, but I'm going to say taking advantage of the moment and perhaps trying to charge more often than you might think is is reasonable given how you kind of divvy things up? Candidly, I think a lot of B2B SaaS that I've seen, so there's the Microsofts and ServiceNow and the Salesforces who I think have done a good job. I think they're positioning it right, where they're charging okay. for the ability to automatically fill out text for people. And that makes a ton of sense. What we're doing is speeding up a bunch of workflows. And when you're doing that, you don't, it, that's a distribution play, not a monetization play. Candidly, most AI that I've seen from other SaaS hasn't been that impressive where it's just like, hey, we're going to put a chat bot, a bunch of, on top of our existing point and click workflows. And frankly, it makes a bunch of them harder. Yeah. And so I actually haven't seen that many SaaS companies that have done it well. It's just like, it's more of a gimmick than it is core to making the, the product experience better. And so it, I think it's just so early. So I, I think the folks that I've seen charge for it, it does make a ton of sense to do. But I think most companies like, you know, I saw one MarTech company that's very large, that's adjacent to our space come out with an AI thing, but it was it was really silly. It was like, oh, you can automatically set up an email campaign with this thing instead of pointing and clicking, but you end up using the point and click anyway because it was so hard to get the chat bot to do exactly the way you want it. And so in that world, you're, you know, I I don't think they're most SaaS companies are actually getting any leverage out of AI. Are you talking about like, I'm just gonna guess, Marketo? Uh, I'm not going to say specific. I don't want to call it specific names. We love all the all other right. MarTech players in this space. Oh, yes. All MarTech players are, are equal in our eyes. Okay. So this brings me to the, like the where AI does actually fit into the enterprise software space. Because one thing that people talk a lot about is data. And if you have customer data that is proprietary to a degree, you have something that's unique and therefore you can create something with AI and that data with permission that is special. But it seems like everyone has data. 
to some degree. I mean, we are in the era of big data. So what I'm trying to figure out is how much of this data moat is going to actually persist and be valuable and a differentiator? And how much of it is just everyone hoping that it's going to become that thing in time? I think our position as Amplitude is pretty unique because we have the largest data set and user behavior in the world. And we have people operationalizing that in sophisticated ways with analytics and experimentation. And so that puts us in a really, really unique space. I think other forms where it's like, okay, you know, a lot of people have, oh, you have a list of contacts, you have an email database. I think that's less interesting because it's like, you know, okay, how is it you're planning to leverage AI? And so I think it will be a disruption on the order of mobile or cloud or, you know, even the early internet. But it's not just apply this new technology to your business. It's figure out how this transforms your product market fit as a business and, and where you can leverage it. And so I think the companies that really get it. Like the the worst thing you can do is just hire a bunch of AI people and put them to work and like create a new AI division for your thing. Really, it needs to come all the way from the CEO level where you're thinking about how does this embed and change the shape of how we're engaging with the customer. And so that's what we've done with all the examples on Amplitude AI. And that's what I think the companies who are really good at it have done. But I think most that I've seen aren't really they're just like, oh, let me, you know, again, put a chat bot on top of a bunch of existing workflows. Yeah, I think everyone wants to have something they can go show as homework to their board, their backers, whatever. But I, I'm not actually using that much of it yet, is what surprises me. If you go back to the early internet, people understood the internet was going to be big and everyone had to have an internet strategy. But if you look at what companies really embraced it and did a good job, it was actually a really different from who you might expect. And it was a much deeper transformation of these businesses than people gave it credit for. And so I think the same thing is happening with AI now. Yeah, and I also think a lot about how when we consider, I don't know, platform shifts to a larger degree, mobile, the internet, whatever, a lot of people just didn't cross the chasm well. They just didn't end up being as, as relevant in the, in the wake. And then also a lot of new companies came from that moment. I mean, think about the pre-app store tech economy, right? In an iPhone sense. And then think about the post. So it's entirely different. So I, I guess like I've talked to a bunch of CEOs about AI in their products in an enterprise software context. And it often sounds similar to what you're saying. Like it's going to be big. Early stuff is not as impressive as some people might have hoped it to be, but we think that our data is going to give us something that's kind of special to to roll out down the road. So how deep is the Amplitude AI product roadmap? Huge. It goes very, very deep for this category. Mm. The holy grail of the MarTech space has been predicting the next action based on what you've done previously. And we have the data and we look at it in the way that allows you to do that. And so in the same way, LLMs allow you to generate massive amounts of text by predicting off the basis of other pieces of of text you've seen before, there's the same potential to create generative models that do that for our space. And so that's what we're pursuing. And if you could really do that, if you could say, hey, I know this customer is going to buy this thing, or I know this customer is going to churn, or I know this customer is going to get stuck here, your ability to impact that user's journey within the digital experience is massive. You could send them the right promotion at the right time. You could make sure to prevent them from turning from the platform. You could re-architect the app to be exactly what they want. Like all the crappy experiences that you've ever had with software have the potential to go away. Yeah, but I mean... I a mean, few months ago, I was trying to rebook my flights on United and it was like <laughs> screwing up because I had like two different logins or two different emails and I was trying to log in yeah. on one and I kept trying to associate my account with the other and I spent an hour on this 
before I finally figured it out. I wish I could have saved that hour of time. That was a really valuable hour of time. And so you multiply that across all the, the frustrating product experiences out there and you solve all of those, that, that's a wonderful place for software to be. And so if we do it right, that's our potential as Amplitude. Now we're in the really early days of that, but we have that vision to go solve that for digital products. Yeah, there's a divide between AI creating new workflows that you should charge for, to your earlier point, and then also AI-influenced software making regular actions by both consumers and businesses alike more efficient and less awful. Yes. And that's very exciting. But, okay, so here's my pet theory. All of this stuff that we're talking about is going to probably work out pretty well. But until we have a way to connect an AI, like a personalized AI client at the OS level that can interact with applications, so I have a central brain that I can use to talk to everything, I feel like it's always going to be so fragmented that it's not going to be as good as we hope. And so I'm kind of crossing my fingers that the Microsofts and Apples of the world, the people who make these core OSs that we live on, are working towards something that is like the Alex AI or the Spencer AI that can then talk to the United app as well as me. And therefore, I can have like a core AI identity for myself. I think that would be cool, but I don't think we're we're too close to that, sadly. Sadly. Alex, let me ask you a question. As a consumer, would you be cool with that AI knowing all this data about you? Because that's the biggest issue that these companies have run into, which is like the privacy concerns. You don't want that data floating around the internet, being resold, using it for God knows what. I mean, so I'm of two minds about this. Because on one hand, I am a online person and I like to think that privacy matters and we should have a reasonable expectation thereof. On the other hand, data brokers already have all my stuff. <laughs> so you're 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 So I I'm cynical, but also not that scared. So I, I think to answer your question is I think that to have this done right, we would have to have an advertising-free operating system to make me have enough faith in it. Because in my experience, any ad-based system gets worse for consumers and better for advertisers over time, which is why I think Microsoft putting ads in Windows is a terrifyingly bad mistake. Oh my God. Because I think, yeah, I mean, I mean, what the fuck, Satya? Stop doing that. Like, Yeah, you're already paying for the thing. Like, why are you you using it? And, you know, I gave you a little bit of static for like the cash flow versus the layoffs and so forth. Microsoft does not need to put ads in Windows. Of all the companies out there, Microsoft has enough quarters to rub together, you know? They're trying to change their model to a recurring revenue model off of a license model, and that's a that's a hard transition. So I, I see why they're doing it, but it's it's I, it's crazy. It just it's like I don't want ads in my operating system. Fuck that. Office three six five is doing great. You know what I mean? Like they've already done a big shift to subscription. Leave my OS alone. Um We'll have you back, Spencer. There's a lot more we could talk about. We could go on for a couple hours, but the, the podcast does have a length. So I'm going to hit you with our, our favorite section of the Wednesday show, which is silly questions with, with fun people. I love it. So we have three very quick ones for you. First up is, what song are you currently obsessed with? Man, I actually haven't listened. I, I'm going to be honest. I haven't listened to anything to a little bit. My favorite by far is Lady Gaga. I just, I love her. And like, she just, she's so many different ways. She's incredible, incredible to such a talented artist. Like you think you're talented? Like, no, that's real talent. I got the chance to see her in concert last year and it was just, you're just completely blown away. You're just like, man, I suck compared to that. Also, Back in the day when we were in college, I mean, Lady Gaga was one of the biggest artists in the, in the world. So I, I have a deep emotional resonance to her. Next question. What is your, I have enough money now, so I'm going to go do this hobby, hobby? <laughs> I got a really sweet PC for myself where I spent a thousand bucks on a hard drive. Uh-huh. A flash hard drive, so yeah, you know, no SSD. spinning discs, yeah. and so it's like been the best thing ever. Like operating system instantly boots up. You can move stuff around, delete stuff. You know, fill it up with like as many games or media as you want. Like, oh, it's uh, it's uh, it's so much fun. Like back when I was uh, in high school, I used to run my own tech support business. 
So I go around the neighborhood fixing people's computers for them and then, you know, use the money that I'd made from that to save up to buy parts. And it was always like, I remember mm-hmm. I, I spent $160 at the time on this, on an NVIDIA TI-4200, which was like one of the top of the line graphics cards and could run, you know, Battlefield and you know, uh-huh. all these, the latest, the latest shooters and all, and it, oh, it could run, it could run uh, Far Cry, which is a really big deal at the time. And so that was like... You know, and so now it's like, man, I, I don't even have that constraint. I can go as crazy as I want. Yeah, I mean, quite literally, I was enjoying, I bought a new gaming PC about a year ago, and I was like, I love being an adult. This is amazing. Hell yeah, hell yeah. So, last question, and this is a perfect segue into it, uh, and it's as follows. Are you playing Baldur's Gate 3? Oh, man, no, I haven't. I haven't. The demo's really cool. You start out in, like, this, like, brain spaceships thing, which is like the, the like it's it's like the, a, the layer of yeah. a mind flare or something. Yeah. Uh, and so I've seen a bunch of people play it on Twitch, but I haven't actually gotten to do it. I did Diablo 4 uh, <sighs> recently. That wasn't as good as I, as I had hoped, unfortunately. So I'm back to my mainstays in terms of Valorant and Minecraft. Those are, those are my two. Wow. I have, it's a good thing we don't have an hour because I have a lot of thoughts about that. Spencer, where can folks find you on the great wide internet? Follow me on Twitter at Spencer Skates. That's where I post the most. You can also follow me on Instagram. You know, I'll put cool stuff up there once in a while. And then, yeah, check us out on Amplitude.com. We help you understand your customers better so that you can build a great product. Awesome. And that is our show for this fine Wednesday afternoon. A big thanks to Spencer for taking part, Teresa for helping on the production side, and of course, thanks to you for listening. We have several sister shows here at TechCrunch, including Chain Reaction and Found. You can find those on any podcast app that you use. And of course, I can't not forget to mention that Disrupt is coming up in September. In the middle of the month, I am beyond excited about it. I will be hosting the Builder Stage, and Equity itself will be helping kick off the entire show. If you don't have a ticket, you can use the code EQUITY, all caps, to save 15%, and you make the show look fantastic internally. Thank you for that. We'll see you in San Francisco. Goodbye. Equity is hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporter, Mary Ann Azevedo. We are produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, and a big thank you to the audience development team and Henry Picavet, who manages TechCrunch Audio Products. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. 